Good morning. Welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. We're so glad to have you with us this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. You are a warmly welcomed guest, and I'd love to uh, meet you after the service. We've been going through a rather extended study of the Gospel of Luke, and we've come to one of the more famous passages in the Gospel, that of the tax collector and the Pharisee. So let me uh, read for us, and you can follow along in your bulletin. This is Luke 18, our Gospel reading. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for our time that you have gathered us for worship. I pray that as we come from so many different perspectives, religious backgrounds, non-religious backgrounds, seeking answers, thinking we have all the answers, Father, we come to you from many different directions, and we pray that you would meet us where we are that you would help us to take a step toward Jesus, even if it's a small one this morning. Help us to wrestle with what he has to say in this passage. And Lord, let it change us. We pray in his name. Amen. Every four years or so, a couple of athletic events roll around, and we have uh, just finished one of those, the Olympics. Uh, But the other one is the World Cup. And if you're an American, you probably don't care that much. But the rest of the world does. The World Cup is huge around the world. And one of the countries that is absolutely bonkers about the World Cup is Iran. And they have a problem, however, because they want to show the exploits of their nation. They want to build up national pride by showing their soccer team. But all they have is these feeds from Western nations. And so they're very afraid that if they show this in Iran, then people are going to get different ideas about what life might be like. They're going to see the Western decadence when the camera pans into the stands. They're going to see women without veils on and maybe not much of anything else. So what did they do? Well, they showed the game itself, but they took old feeds from winter games in Iran, and every time that the Western cameras panned to the um, crowd, they spliced in feed or video from these winter games in Iran. And so everyone was bundled up in parkas and hoods and everything, you know, cheering, yay, go Iran. They're cheering for something entirely different, not the soccer match. It was as if the World Cup was being played in the summer on frozen tundra in Iran. It sounds rather absurd, but is it really? Don't we do oftentimes a very similar thing every day in our own lives? We project an image that doesn't match reality. 
We edit our lives so that we only allow the safe parts out. We only let people see certain feeds of our lives. We're very good editors of what other people see. Now, Jesus tells us a story, tells a story to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And this person is a Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He fasts twice a week. He gives a tenth of everything he gets. Now, maybe he needs to work on his thank you letter etiquette. He's not really all that thankful to God. Thank you. When you write a thank you letter, you're supposed to talk about the other person, but he talks about himself. But other than that, he's a pretty decent chap. He's not the first person that you'd invite to a party because he's kind of a square. He may not be all that fun to hang around with, but he's faithful to his wife. He's faithful to his family. The community is better for having him around. And his religious faithfulness actually goes beyond what is required. Jesus makes the point that he fasts and gives more than he's required to. He tithes 10%, not only on the things that the Old Testament law required, but on all things. And we know that you can tell, as Steve mentioned earlier, the seriousness about someone's commitments to a cause or to a belief system when it touches their pocketbook. But for all his good works, his civic, his religious, his social righteousness, Jesus says he's rejected. All his years of religious and moral hard work didn't bring him any closer to a real relationship with God. Now, what, would we, what might we think about this rejection? Well, either God's commands must stand for something, so it's not a matter of indifference of whether one keeps them as scrupulously as this Pharisee does or as the tax collector flouts them. Either that or God's rules really aren't meant to be taken all that seriously. So this tax collector is just as fine. The Pharisee's goodness He's just the same as a thief or an adulterer. Is it one of those options, or is there something else at play here? And this is where the nuance and the complexity of Jesus' story and his comments on it uh, come out, because it's not patently obvious why we, would, we should approve of the tax collector and reject the Pharisee. Now, let's look at the tax collector. The tax collector in contrast, stands at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to God, but he beats his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Whenever we watch a story or a film, we often identify with one particular character. And if it's a good story or a good film, you often find yourself identifying with the bad guy, with the antagonist. And that's what's happened with a group of us that are watching the AMC uh, show Breaking Bad. Now, I'm not going to give away the ending here, give away the whole thing, but it's very well done. And it's a story of a high school chemistry teacher who gets terminal lung cancer. And as his future disappears, he decides he needs to leave a nest egg for his family. And so he uses his chemistry skills to begin cooking methamphetamine. And through that process, he then grows into not only a cook, but also a drug lord. He's better at it than anyone else. But the show is, extended, is really an extended observation 
on someone losing their future and thus their moral restraint. Now, without giving away too much, he really turns into a pretty terrible person. But each week, as we talk about and discuss the episode, we're surprised at how much we relate to him and how much we root for him. And he's an evil, evil person. But he's not one-dimensional. Even as he becomes this very maniacal, power-hungry drug lord, he has moments of real soft, what you could call humanity or goodness While selling the product that claims the lives and the dignity of poor people everywhere, you find yourself wanting him to succeed. Now, he's pretty much a good stand-in for the tax collector because Walter White, the methamphetamine dealer, cook, and drug lord, is a bad guy in every community, whether it's Portland or the heartland. Jesus couldn't have picked anyone more suitable as a contrast to the Pharisee. The Pharisee is very respected in his culture. He lived in a day where religious people were still respected. But the tax collector is an utter pariah. He works for the Romans, and he's skimming money off of his own people. To the Romans, he's just an instrument, a tool for them to collect money, a nobody. But to his own people... He's a turncoat, and he enriches himself on the backs of the poor and the working class. He's the worst kind of crook. He's a legal one. But he comes to the temple to pray. Something has possessed him to come to God's temple and seek forgiveness, seek reconciliation. But he's scorned by everyone that's gathered there. While the Pharisee stands in the center of the temple, the tax collector stands way far off, The good people that have gathered in the temple won't have him. They won't associate with him. They push him off. He beats his breast, which is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of great lament. And he wouldn't look up to heaven. He presumes in his own life, there's nothing that God could see in me that would merit his attention. There's nothing that would guarantee that he doesn't just obliterate me on the spot. But for all his unfitness, his sinful trade, his lack of religious resume, Jesus says, this is the one who's approved by God. This is the one who goes down to his house justified. The good religious people are out. The bad, sinful, irreligious people are in. What are we to think of that? Maybe we think, aha, I got it. I know the difference in the two. It's that the Pharisee has a list of good things, but he's very prideful about it. But the tax collector, while he has nothing, he's very humble. Aha, maybe that's it. But Jesus is not recommending primarily a humble stance rather than a proud one. But what he's saying is that we need to drop all religious stances altogether. You see, when we say, God, I'm thank, thank you that I am humble... That's no different than, God, I thank you that I pray and fast and tithe. If the point is the virtue of humility, then we're just exchanging virtues in the Pharisee's speech. We can be just as ostentatiously prideful in our humility like anything else. One commentator says that whether one is a publican or a Pharisee, whether one is loved or rejected by God does not depend on particular qualities. Nor does it depend on whether one is outwardly humble or not, whether one has illusions about oneself, or whether one 
is honest. In other words, everything one does and thinks can be used by the devil. He can use even the holiest of waters to drive his mills. One can play the deuce even, while divine, even with divine forgiveness and make it a pretext for evil. So we must be especially careful of the devout moments in our life. No confession of sin safeguards us against pride. Even humility is not a virtue which is immune to the devil. On the contrary, these are the very nests in which he loves to lay the cuckoo eggs of pride, and he's pleased as punch with the pious that hatch them, hatch them out. In other words, friends, every one of us can be a Pharisee. There's many ways that we can cover and hide. We can do it in cynical ways. What does Oscar Wilde say about a cynic? Is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. We distrust everything. We discredit other people. We discredit religion. We discredit God. We say, I'm the only one who can see. I'm the only one who knows what is really true and really false. We're a Pharisee with an attitude. Or maybe at the other, other end of the spectrum, we're not cynical and proud, but we have low self-confidence. We have low self-image. If someone really knew me, they couldn't possibly love me. We hide from real intimacy. We hide even from God because we're certainly certain that he couldn't love me if he really knew who I was, if he really saw me for what I've done. It's a difficult thing to be loved. But you're just a Pharisee without the benefits. You're saying the only way that you can secure real love and acceptance is by your performance. You'll only be loved on your own terms. Just like the cynic, you're trying to maintain control. You're dealing with life on your own and out of your own resources. Everyone, friends, can be a Pharisee. Portlanders, religious people, liberals, fundamentalists, Democrats and Republicans, Presbyterians and Baptists. And as soon as you claim that you're not, the parable snags you. God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee is a Pharisee's prayer. Now here's the test, and especially for us religious people, us church people who know the game. Here's the test. You've agreed with God. You've agreed with Jesus that because of this man's humble request for mercy, that it's the tax collector and not the Pharisee who should be approved by God. But follow him through his week. He goes right back to his deceitful ways. He doesn't get a different job. He doesn't reform at all. He doesn't change. He's the same guy with the same confession the very next week and every week afterwards. Wouldn't you insist on just a little bit of reform? Wouldn't you insist on just a little bit of change in order for him to come back and get the same speech from God? Wouldn't you want to pull God to the side and say, come on, big fellow, you've got to protect your honor. This guy is keeping, coming back with the same thing and he's not changing and yet you're giving him grace. What's that all about? Don't you have to uphold what is good? But you see, God won't alter the parable He'll send him down to his house justified just like he did the week before and the week prior and the week before that. But the question is, would you? Would I? What kind of game are we playing in this church? 
Another quote, if you'll bear with me. While you understand the thrust of the parable with your mind, your heart has a desperate need to believe its opposite. We all long to establish our identity by seeing ourselves as approved in other people's eyes. We spend our days preening ourselves before the mirror of their opinion so we will not have to think about the nightmare of appearing before them naked and uncombed. We fear the tax collector's acceptance because we know precisely what it means. It means we'll never be free until we're dead to the whole business of justifying ourselves. But since that business is our life, it means not until we are dead. As long as you are struggling like the Pharisee to be alive in your own eyes and to the precise degree that your struggles are for what is holy and just and good, you will resent the apparent indifference to your pains that God shows in the making the effortless death the touchstone of your justification. Only when you are finally able with the tax collector to admit that you are dead will you be able to stop balking at grace. It's a very difficult thing to be loved. It's a very difficult thing to receive true grace. It's a feat of almost impossible valor to truly be known, to be seen for who we really are. Steve and I had a, a conversation this week with a gentleman that we doesn't go to this church, but we met him through a variety of channels, and it was a beautiful time. And it's one of those conversations where as pastors you walk away and think, this is why I got into this business. This is why I do what I do. It's a conversation that I wish that this person had had years ago because it was clear that his experience, or at least his impression of the church and of church people, was those confident in their own righteousness. And they were happy if he stayed outside of their fellowship, or at least if they allowed him in only in certain ways. Churches might do ministry towards this person, but would never receive him as an equal. Some of us need to come out of hiding. Some of us need to have those types of conversations with Steve or I or someone else you trust in this church. Some of you are wrestling with a behavior that generates a great deal of shame and you keep it to yourself because you reason that if people know this about me, they certainly won't accept me. Some of you are holding on to something in your past that may not have even been your fault, but you've sworn that you'll never let people in again. You'll never give another person a chance to hurt you as deeply as that person did. Some of you are just so tired of religious formula, formalism and posturing, but it's how you've made your nest for so long that you don't know what life would be like without it. You've come inside the church, but only on certain terms. Your religious duty is a form of self-defense. Friends, if this passage is saying anything, it's don't stand far off. Maybe you've never experienced a community that welcomes you no matter what. Maybe you've never experienced a God that accepts you no matter what. And so it's very scary. It's a difficult thing to be loved. You see, we've practiced earning love our whole life and making others earn it from us. And so we don't know anything different. But friends, Jesus is different. 
God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the prayer that Jesus recommends for all of us. And this term, have mercy, it doesn't quite capture the Greek word that's underlying that. And the New Testament writers even have wrestled with how to define this because it has not just one meaning, but a few. The Greek word is, means to make propitiation or expiate. These are big theological terms that they teach you in seminary. And they say, don't use them in the pulpit because no one will know what you're talking about. But they're very important terms. Maybe you don't remember the actual terminology, but you should know the concept. Propitiate means to turn away. It means to satisfy God's wrath. It captures the idea of the concept of being hidden in Jesus, that when you become a Christian, when you receive the gospel, that you remain sinners but are covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so you count as righteous. Now, expiation is a little bit different. It offers a contrast, though it's included in the same term. And what it means is that you're actually made righteous, righteous, that you're cleansed of your sins, that because of Christ, you are actually righteous. It's not simply that Jesus stands in between God's wrath and protects you and hides who you really are. It's that he changes you and makes you righteous because of his work. It means basically that Jesus removes the stain of sin rather than simply covering it. Why is this important? The Pharisee is basically, the tax collector is basically saying, Lord, make me what I'm not. Make me what I'm not. Make me righteous. You see, both are very important and both are true. But if you only get propitiation, if you only get that you're hidden in Christ, that God is appeased, that his anger has turned away, but that he doesn't really see you, then how can you come out of hiding? Isn't that very similar to the relationships that we have with other people, that maybe they allow me to be here, maybe they are kind to me, but they don't really see me? If both are true, however, not only are you hidden in Jesus' righteousness, but you are made righteous it's different. You can come clean. You can come out of hiding. You can come to a pastor and say, look at me. Look at all of this garbage in my life. But what Jesus has said is that I am made righteous forever. Jesus is different. Jesus says the prayer, the approach to God is not one of religious duty. It's not one of religious posturing, but it's one of repentance. It's one of repentance and faith that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you hide me in the cloak of Jesus? Would you also change me? Would you make me new forever? Would you forgive what I've done? Marguerite Lasky, and I'll finish with this, was a famous atheist in Britain in the last century. And on her deathbed, she didn't have a prayer of repentance or anything like that, but what she did say was very profound. She said, one thing I envy of you Christians is forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. Friends, Jesus stands waiting to forgive you of everything, and you're done. You're free. You can come clean. You can be honest about yourself to others, for maybe for the very first time. So let's do that now as we pray.
Father, we all in many ways like to hide. It's very uncomfortable to be seen, to be known. It's fearful. Lord, I pray that you would take away that trepidation, take away that fear, those things that would inhibit us coming forward to say that I agree with what Jesus says about me, that I am a sinner, and yet I can be made fully whole, fully righteous. I pray that we would avail ourselves on you and on that offer and on this meal as we come to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.